Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get going. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we are today. And as you know, as I mentioned before, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We'll be done, Lord willing, at the end of this summer. And uh, then our plan is to move on to another book. I like to alternate between New Testament and Old Testament so we don't neglect the Old Testament. I'm heavily leaning towards the Old Testament book of Ruth next. And so uh, uh, don't, don't etch that in stone, but I think that's where we're going. That's where we'll probably be in the fall. And then we'll be back in the New Testament after we get done with Ruth, Lord willing. But um, all right, today is going to be a great day. Uh, this is one of those chapters in the Bible that is often avoided. Uh, that is very uh, uh, misunderstood, and just this whole issue of spiritual gifts, in particular gifts, the gifts of prophecy and tongues, which is what 1 Corinthians 14 is about, are often uh, misunderstood, feared, overemphasized in various different church cultures. And uh, I know that I've come from church cultures that uh, were for the operation of these gifts, and I've been in church cultures that were against the operation of these gifts. And uh, what I found, if I could just offer a sort of humble critique, is that in both situations, there was almost no teaching as to why uh, those particular churches or denominations uh, felt that way. There was just a sort of understanding, uh, just sort of assumption. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we like to work our way through the Bible, because it it prevents us from skipping over things or just assuming things. And so we're going to work our way through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the first 25 verses. And so today, we're going to talk about what these two gifts are. And then, when we get to the second part of 1 Corinthians 14 later on, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about how these gifts should operate in the church. And if this is your first time here... Uh, let me just kind of put my cards on the table and let you know so you're not kind of wondering where I stand. I do believe that all of the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament are still in operation today, but I would differ from some in a, in a Pentecostal or charismatic setting where they would think that a particular gift, specifically tongues, is something that um, all Christians are going to speak in or should seek after, or that this particular gift is a sort of a marker of a second experience in the Lord. I don't think that there's biblical evidence for that, and we'll talk about that. And then the other side of the, the I guess, the spectrum would be Christians that believe that these more miraculous gifts or revelatory gifts, like tongues and prophecy and words of wisdom and knowledge, some Christians believe that these gifts have ceased, and we're going to talk about all of that. Let me just say before we, before we step off on this study, that this particular truth is something that we at Crosspoint believe is an open-handed truth. And what we mean by that is, is that we think that, the, that when you look at the Bible and look at doctrine, it's helpful, especially in church culture, to think of truths that are essential towards, to Christian historical orthodoxy and faithfulness, and then truths that uh, we may have a stance on and believe a certain way about, but that we need to be generous towards other Christians about and and realize that Christians that love Jesus as just as much as we do may have different views on some of these secondary issues. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It just means that I think that we should 
interact with one another with a lot of charitability and graciousness. And this is certainly one of these open-handed issues. And so um, as I teach today, and you find yourself uh, on another side of the theological spectrum than I am, don't let that cause you trouble or panic, as Robert would say, but let that, uh, just let that stir your heart and, 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 and push you on towards thinking about this issue more deeply. This is uh, believing the way I do or the leadership at Crosspoint does on this issue is not a requirement for membership or salvation or service or leadership in this church. This is an open-handed issue, but one that we want to be thoughtful about and think deeply about and engage together as a church with a lot of humility. So here's my plan. I'm going to read the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians 14, and then I'm going to ask and answer, Lord willing, 10 questions. 10. That's right. I said it. 10. And um, if you're a note taker and you are not uh, the fastest writer in the West or the East, um, that's okay. All of my notes, we're going to post them on the website early in the week. So um, don't feel the pressure to get everything down. We're going to post all of this on the internet on the sermon page. Okay, so that's my plan, to read the text and then go back and answer 10 questions that I think are drawn out of this text. Um, so today we're just going to look at the gifts, and then when we get to the next part of this chapter, we're going to look at how they should operate in the church, okay? So uh, let me read. And as I read, click in with me. I know sometimes it's my... Um, it's my uh, I get in a mode where when somebody reads a long passage, sometimes I just kind of drift in and out of consciousness. Um, click in with me. Read along. Have the Bible open in your lap and read with me. Or if it's easier for you to look on the screen, look at the screen. These are the very words of God, friends. These have ultimate authority in the life of a Christian. And so let's read these beautiful words. Paul writes in chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, 
but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises, or I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. These are the words of the Lord. Well, friends, <laughs> this is difficult to follow. Let's just admit that. And so the Lord is going to need to help us to unpack these truths. And so I'm going to pray. Pray with me that the Lord would give us understanding. Lord, as we come to this text, I pray for a few things. First, I, I pray for a deep and abiding sense of humility among us. I know this particular issue of spiritual gifts, and in particular the gift of tongues, has been one that for some in the church has been inappropriately used as a source of pride and arrogance and division. And for others in the church, it is looked at in a sort of mocking way. And it's uh, viewed with a lot of suspicion and maybe even fear. Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church the unusual kindness of thinking through these issues with humility. Lord, this, these are your words. We don't come to it judging it through the filter of the church culture that we grew up in. We, we pray that you would help us judge these issues as you judge us with your word, that in humility, God, we would think about what you are saying to us. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I say today that is wrong or incorrect, that it would fall to the ground. But if there's anything that's true, that it would be, that it would stick fast to our spirits. And that as a result, it wouldn't just be doctrinal knowledge that would be built up so that we're, now we've handled this issue, but Lord, that it would propel us into affection for Christ and all that he has given us to be a people who make much of Jesus in our city and in our time. And Lord, finally, as we approach this text on this Father's Day, I do, I do pray for the fathers in this room that you would encourage them that Crosspoint would be a place where a biblical masculine spirit is encouraged and flourishes. And in particular for some in this room who have recently lost their father or who maybe did not have the best representation of an earthly father and that has been a tremendous obstacle in their life spiritually, I pray, God, that you would give us grace to look past the good or the bad models of our earthly fathers 
and see you, our perfect heavenly Father. Help us now with wisdom and humility and passion for Jesus as we look at this text. I pray it in that strong name of Christ, our King. Amen. All right, ten questions uh, about this text. As you could tell by reading those 25 verses, there's a lot that's going on here. What's happening, just by way of backing up a little bit, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, is that Paul is correcting the abuse and misuse of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. What is happening is that some of the Corinthians very likely are zeroing in on the gift of tongues and using that to sort of prop themselves up and divide the church. And Paul, in these chapters, writes to them, and in verse, chapter 12, he argues for the fact that there is a variety of gifts, that they shouldn't focus on just one gift, and that not all are going to prophesy, not all are going to speak in tongues, but there's a variety of gifts. And he gives a list in chapter 12 that includes nine gifts, but that list is by no means meant to be exhaustive. There are many spiritual gifts, as many different people as there are in this room that are born again and have been gifted by God in various ways in their personality, is how many different gifts there are. There are an innumerable amount of spiritual gifts that God gives gives to His people. And so Paul is arguing in chapter 12 that there's a variety of gifts, not just one, like tongues that they were focusing on. And then in chapter 13, as we talked about last week, these gifts that God has given us as believers in Jesus should all flow through the context of our love for one another. They shouldn't dead end on ourselves so that we might make much of ourselves, but that we should make much of Jesus through these gifts. And now he handles in particular two spiritual gifts that seem to be kind of tangled up in the Corinthian mind the gifts of prophecy and tongues. So we're going to work our way through 10 questions. Question number one, why do some Christians think that prophecy and tongues and some of the other more miraculous gifts have ceased? Why do some Christians come from a theological position that some of the gifts have ceased? And just so you know, there's kind of three, and I'm printing with very broad brushes here, there's sort of three theological camps. There are those that think that some of these gifts have ceased, and they would be called cessationists because using the word ceased, maybe they think this, they don't know that term, but just theologically, they think the gifts have ceased. Then on the other side of the spectrum, there are Pentecostals who believe that all of the gifts are still in operation today. And Pentecostals in particular believe that the gift of tongues that we're going to talk about in a little bit here is a necessary sort of physical evidence that is a marker for uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit or this second sort of endowment with power. And so they would believe all the gifts are in operation and that in particular tongues is a necessary marker for the second experience. And then in the middle, there's, uh, which is where I find myself, is people that would call themselves continuationists or charismatics, which is a large umbrella, which believe that all of the gifts still continue, but that no one particular gift is a sort of necessary first evidence. And so, the first question is, why do some Christians think that prophecy in tongues and some of the other miraculous gifts have ceased? Well, uh, this is a, a, a question that we could spend all day on, but just very briefly, let me answer this. First is, is that uh, I think that they mistakenly 
interpret 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, and where, if you look back uh, in the, next, the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, where Paul says that there is coming a time when these spiritual gifts will cease. He says that, that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away in verse 8 of chapter 13. And then he says in verse 9 that we, these gifts are partial. They're, they're not fully, they're not perfect, they're partial. But he says in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial, meaning these temporary gifts of prophecy, tongues, knowledge, and we can imply the others are well, as well. These temporary gifts, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, one of the reasons some people think that these gifts have ceased is they think that what Paul is alluding to there when he says the perfect passes away, they think that that means the Bible in its completed state. In other words, all 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament 39 and the 27 New Testament books. Because you know, when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, the New Testament had not been formed yet. It was still being written. The Gospels were circulating, and, and all the New Testament letters hadn't really been formed as the Bible. And so the thinking is, for people that believe the gifts have ceased, is that Paul is referring to this perfect thing, meaning the canonization of the Bible. And when we have that, there will be no more need for these revelatory gifts because, uh, because we don't need them anymore because we have the Bible now. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying because he goes on to say in the rest of chapter 13 there that that time that he speaks of when the perfect comes is a time when we shall know completely, when we shall be face to face in perfect knowledge and perfect knowability. And I think that what he's speaking of there in verse 10 about this perfect coming is the return of Jesus, the, the second advent of Christ, not the Bible. So that's one reason why I think they... Uh, again, humbly, I think that they mistakenly interpret that. Also, they would look at a couple key verses in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 and Hebrews chapter 2. You don't need to flip there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And these verses seem to imply that these signs, these miraculous signs, were given by God to sort of validate or attest the ministry of the apostles. The 12 apostles, plus a few others, Jesus' half-brothers, that had this special authority in the new church. Let me read to you those verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, thinking maybe the apostles, the, the herd that heard the firsthand report of Christ in his teaching while they were with Jesus, while God, verse 4, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, uh, those who believe that the gifts have ceased often look at those two verses and they say, well... Those two verses clearly say that God used these signs to sort of authenticate or validate the special ministry and authority of the apostles. And I would agree with that. I think that's exactly what those verses say, that God used a sort of special concentration of his power to affirm the word and the ministry of Peter and, and John and James and then later on Paul. There's no doubt about that. But just because God used a higher concentration of his 
power through the hands of those apostles to give them a special authority in the, in the planting of the first church doesn't mean that we have to then read into that, that in any way that the gifts have ceased. And so I think that that line of thinking overreaches what those verses are saying. We could say much more about that. I think we have to uh, admit a couple things, though. Even if we are people that believe that the gifts have continued, we have to grant that there certainly seems to be a greater concentration of miracles and gifts by the apostles. And uh, that, that these gifts, but that does not mean that these gifts or miracles are not given to others. We could go much more thoroughly into this. If you are the type of person that wants to dig more thoroughly into this question, I commend to you a book that we sell in our resource center. It's called Systematic Theology. It weighs about 20 pounds. It's a big, thick book. It's wit- written by a man named Wayne Grudem. Aside from the Bible... That has been one of the most influential and formative books for me um, in my life. I, there is not a week that goes by that I do not refer to that book, Systematic Theology. It is a beautiful work, uh, and Wayne Grudem handles, uh, in a summary sort of way, virtually every aspect of Christian doctrine. It is not written just for pastors and theologians. It would be a tremendous resource for you. It's, it's, we've got four of them in there, in particular... His chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit are fantastic, uh, and I would recommend that. And in particular, on this question, chapter 17, um, he handles this question very, very well. So I commend that book to you. If we have a run on that book and all of you buy it, we'll buy some more, and you can buy it. But that's a great book. So uh, that's why some Christians think, because of that verse in thir- chapter 13, verse 10, that I think they mistakenly interpret as the Bible rather than Jesus being the perfect thing that comes. And then thinking that these verses in 2 Corinthians and Hebrews are specifically talking about gifts as authenticating the ministry of the apostles. I would humbly disagree with that statement. I think that the gifts have continued. Okay, question number two. Now, let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Why do some, primarily Pentecostals, believe that tongues are evidence of a second experience after salvation? Why do some Christians, primarily Pentecostals, believe that speaking in tongues is evidence of a second experience after salvation? Well, again, we could spend all Sunday on this, and so I'm going to answer these questions real briefly. But let me tell you the reason why some Christians believe that. I think it's because they mistakenly interpret what's going on in the book of Acts in four specific accounts as a prescriptive doctrinal pattern for a personal experience. Okay, so here's what's happening in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus has lived his life on this earth. He's ministered for three years. He's gathered some apostles to himself. He's crucified. He died. He he dies. He's resurrected. Then he walks on the earth, uh, instructing his disciples for 40 days after after his resurrection. Then he ascends to heaven. He tells his early disciples, his followers, to go to Jerusalem and wait for him when he will pour out his spirit on the church. And that happens in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, where we see this day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church. And clearly, in Acts chapter 2, these early believers, these 120 that were gathered together in the upper room, spoke in other tongues. And in that instance, they were known human languages that were unknown to them as Jews, but they were foreign languages that were some of the languages of the people that were gathered together around Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of of Pentecost. But what's happening on Acts chapter 2 is these are all Jews. These are ethnic Jews 
who are the first converts to Christianity, and God pours out His Spirit on him, and then in that moment, the New Testament church is birthed. So it's these 120 Jews gathered in this room. God pours out His Spirit, and He, he, he validates it to them. He proves that, they've, that something powerful has happened because they speak in tongues, all right? And then it becomes a great witness for the early church. You see there in the second part of Acts chapter 2, they speak, and everybody thinks they're drunk, but it's really in foreign languages. It becomes a sign to those gathered. Peter gets up and preaches a message, and a bunch of people get saved. Okay, so Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 8, something similar happens. Acts chapter 8, Philip, one of the Jewish early disciples, goes and preaches to the Samaritans who are not believers in Jesus and not Jews, they're half-breeds, they're half-Jew, half-Gentiles, and there's a tremendous amount of religious tension between Jews and Samaritans, and Peter, uh, Philip preaches the gospel to them, and it seems like the same thing happens to them. They receive Christ, and then they receive this gift of tongues, and, and Peter and John come, Peter and John come, the early apostles come, and they validate, they see that the gospel that has now fallen on these Samaritans has fallen, it was fallen on the Jews, is now on the Samaritans, okay? And then in Acts chapter 10, we see another instance where some people in the early church speak in tongues, where Peter goes to the Roman, Italian, Gentile uh, household of Cornelius, and Cornelius, a Roman Gentile, not a Jew, not a believer in Jesus, not a believer in the Old Testament, hears the preaching of Peter, receives Christ as his Savior, and then him and his household are baptized into the faith, and they speak in tongues, okay? And then in Acts chapter 19, we see a similar pattern where Paul, now he's gone from being Saul, the Jew persecutor of Christianity, to the Christian Paul in Acts chapter 19. He then preaches to these Greek Ephesians the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentile Greek Ephesians, and they seem to speak in tongues. So in each one of these chapters, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, either tongues is mentioned or it is strongly implied that these people spoke in tongues after they believed in Jesus. And so here's where Pentecostals get their doctrine of initial evidence from. They look at those accounts in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, and they read into those accounts a personal pattern that you believe in Jesus. Of course, we all believe, all Christians believe that when we believe in Jesus, we're baptized into the body, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, and that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But then there's this second one-time work that is always evidenced by speaking in tongues. And they get that because it seems to be the pattern in Acts chapter 2, 8, 10, and 19. But I don't think that's what's going on there. I think that there's a bigger picture going on there rather than just a personal pattern. What's happening is you've got to understand that Christianity at the beginning was all Jews. Okay, All Jesus' disciples and apostles were Jews. And that's the upper room in Acts chapter 2. The first Christians, they're all Jews. Okay, And there's a tremendous amount of ethnic tension and, and, and strife between Jews and everybody else. And so... When the gospel, the Jews are thinking that the gospel is only for them, that God is their God, not the God of these sloppy pagans who eat, you know, pork and, and, and don't worship the way they do. And so when the gospel starts to move, when God spreads the gospel into the Gentile uh, Roman Empire, I think what's happening in Acts chapter 8 
in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19 is God is proving to the early Jewish disciples and apostles through a recreation of what happened to them in Acts chapter 2. He's proving to them that the gospel isn't just for them. It's also for those dirty, nasty Samaritans that you hate. And it's even for those dirty, nasty Romans who are oppressing you right now. And it's even for those Greek philosophers who rely on their own knowledge and pagan uh, idolatry. It's even for them. And so the fact that God uses tongues like he did in Acts chapter 2 in chapters 8 with the Samaritans and 10 with the Romans and 19 with the Greeks, I think has a broader historical implication that God is authenticating and proving the gospel in the hearts of the Jewish early believers so that they don't just hold on to the gospel as merely a Jewish thing. In fact, that becomes the issue in Acts chapter 15. There's this big council of the earliest Jewish believers, and they had this big meeting. Are we going to let these sloppy Gentiles in or not? I mean, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to uh, uphold our dietary laws? And so there was this great issue as to who the gospel was for. And I think what Pentecostal theology does is it reads too personally into that account and sees a sort of personal pattern and uh, then draws from that this doctrine that says that tongues is always going to be a sort of evidence of a second spiritual experience. Now, let me stop and say that if that is your uh, perspective and that has been your experience, I am not denigrating that experience at all. For many, they do have a sort of second, sort of spiritual, just powerful pouring out of God's Spirit on them. And I think that's wonderful. I think if you have become a Christian and then God, later on in your life, you've sought God for a particular gift. Maybe it's tongues and God gave it to you. And that's a, I'm not saying that that is not what your personal experience has been. I'm just saying that I don't think we should build doctrine around a personal experience. And I think that what's going on in Acts chapter 2, 8, 10, and 19 is the historical redemptive movement of the gospel across ethnic lines, not a prescription for a personal doctrinal um, experience. Does that make sense? All right, good. What are you going to say? No? All right, okay. <laughs> All right, if you have any questions about this, I think probably in July sometime, we got a few uh, weekends where we're going to do some other things here in an evening. I'm going to just have a Q&A because I realize we're, there's no way that I can possibly answer all your questions here. All right, question number three. Into the nitty-gritty now. What is the gift of prophecy? What is the gift of prophecy? It is not predicting the future as was sometimes the role of Old Testament prophets. The gift of prophecy is not to be confused with the Old Testament office of prophet. In the Old Testament, you had these men that were prophets that had a special authority from God to speak His very words. And in many cases, were actually the authors of some of the Old Testament books. The New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophets is the office of apostles, okay? And that's the 12 disciples minus one, Judas, who bowed out at the end and then was replaced by Matthias, and then Paul, who becomes an apostle because Jesus comes back down from heaven to validate his apostleship and Jesus' half-brother. So we've got about 14 or 15 apostles in the New Testament, and these men had a special authority to write the very words of God that we now know of as our New Testament. So by the way, the 27 new books of the New Testament have all come through the hand of an apostle 
or through one of his ministry associates. So all of the New Testament books, and that was the marker for whether or not a book could be in the New Testament in the early church, is whether it had the authority of an apostle. And so the office of prophet in the Old Testament correlates with the office of apostle in the New Testament. But the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, don't think Old Testament prophet. Don't think, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel standing up on a mountain saying, thus saith the Lord. What prophecy is, is it is a human report, a merely human report of a divine revelation. It's the speaking forth in merely human words of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. It's, it, Wayne Grudem in his book defines it this way, it's something that God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress upon someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. And so let's demystify prophecy. Prophecy is not predicting the future. It's not, you know, when it's not some strange entranced state where we need fog machines on the stage and background music and, and somebody running around with a streamer and a banjo and a, and a tambourine. That's not sure divest yourself of TBN culture. Right? Prophecy is a very everyday practical thing. And it is merely a special revelation or thought that God gives spontaneously to a Christian for the purpose of bringing some truth to bear amongst his people. So we can conclude a couple of things from this. There should be a sort of everydayness to prophetic speech for Christians, right? I mean, it would not be uncommon in a, in a group of people who are biblically centered and humble and seeking God for prophetic speech to fill the speech of a church. Now, what I'm doing right now is preaching and teaching. But I, I would hope that interlaced in my sermons and messages are at times prophetic speech where God maybe gives me a thought or a particular thing. And it can take all sorts of different manifestations. It can be very direct or it can be just a general sense of God's way and truth. But that's what prophecy is. It is, a, it is the speaking forth in merely human words of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Okay, so what's the function of prophecy? Question number four. What's the function of prophecy? Again, let's demystify it a little bit. It's a thought or revelation from God to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Let's look back at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 14. He gives us the answer of why prophecy is given to the church. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But, then, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And so the function of prophecy or of prophetic speech is for the upbuilding the encouragement, and the consolation of God's people. Now, it can also serve as a sign for believers, confirming and reassuring them of God's blessing, and it can also function evangelistically for an unbeliever by bringing them to conviction when they join a gathering of believers and there's a prophetic speech, revealing the secrets of their hearts so that they might worship God. Where do I get that from? I get that from the text that we read. Look at verse 22 of chapter 14. It says in, chapter, in verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. We'll talk about that in a second. 
while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. So in what sense is it a sign? It is a sign. It is an encouragement. It's a demonstration of God to encourage His people that He is really among them. Verse 23, also it could potentially have, as I mentioned, an evangelistic purpose. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, outsiders or unbelievers come in, they look and say, you're out of your minds. But verse 24 says, but if all prophesy in an unbeliever or outsider enters, Paul says that there's this possibility that he would be convicted by all, that he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Friends, we should all pray that prophetic speech should fill our speaking in church so that an unbeliever might come in and God might use me or Reynolds or somebody else or even in conversation to bring some truth that would bring conviction and open up their heart and lay them bare so that they will look away from themselves and to Christ. Friends, do you see how practical and everyday that should be in the church? Well, that's the function of prophecy, to upbuild, encourage, and console the people of God and at times to lay bare the heart of the unbelievers so that they will trust in Jesus. Question number five, what is the gift of tongues? Now, before I answer this, friends, regardless of where you stand on the theological perspective, whether you're for tongues and you speak in tongues and you wish everybody else would speak in tongues or whether or not you are scared of it and think that people that do are weird, regardless of where you stand on that perspective, even if you do speak in tongues, can we not admit that this is a strange gift? It's strange, all right? And I think, as we'll get to at the end, I think there's a reason for that strangeness. I think it's God-ordained. I think that there's some humility that we're supposed to learn in that. But it is a strange gift. So what is the gift of tongues? The gift of tongues is the Spirit-prompted speaking or singing of prayers, praise, or thanksgiving to God in speech not understood by the speaker. Speech not understood by the speaker. We're going to define that a little bit more tightly in just a second as we ask a few more questions about tongues. But I think if we go much further than that um, right now, it will confuse the waters. It's, it's prayers, praise, or thanksgiving spoken by a person, prompted by the Spirit, directed to God. Look at verses 2 and 14. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So tongue speech is directed from man to God, whereas prophecy speech is this truth that's given to a person from God spoken to the people, okay? And then in verse 14, it gives us kind of what the content of this tongue speech is. He says in verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. So we know that it's a prayer, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And then he says, I will sing praise with my spirit. So it can also have a praise aspect to it, but I will sing with my mind also. And then in verse 16, again, continuing on tongues in, is what he's thinking of here. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, in other words, while you're praying or singing in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? So we see three words there that form the content or the function of what tongues are for. It is, it, the gift of tongues is prayers, praise, or thanksgiving directed to God directionally it is from people to God, not from God to people. And as a little aside here, just as a little teaching point about what often happens in Pentecostal culture, 
And we'll talk about this in a second, but the gift of tongues, when it is used publicly in a gathering of Christians, should always be accompanied by the gift of interpretation. And I venture to say that those of us that have come from backgrounds where that happens, oftentimes you will hear the interpretation as God speaking to the people. But really, there's no biblical basis for that. What tongue speech is, is it's prayer, praise, or thanksgiving directed to God. Paul clearly says that. And so when you hear, if you've ever been in a context where there is an interpretation, it's a sort of thus saith the Lord. Friends, we we really have no other recourse other than to say that is just simply unbiblical. Okay, that interpretation is simply unbiblical. Is that person intentionally deceiving? No. And here, if I could just offer very humbly one little critique of Pentecostal culture is that I think often in Pentecostal culture what happens in tongues and interpretation in their services is very often it's very earnest and it's very sincere, but very often my experience has been that it is, is learned behavior and the power of suggestion sort of grabs hold of a group of people and there's a lot of just kind of unbiblical practice. Now, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying that we shouldn't pursue this gift if God would give it to us. But I think we need to admit with some humility that often what happens in American church culture is really has no biblical basis. And so it is speech that's directed to God. The speaker, one final thing on the gift of tongues here before we look at its function, the speaker is not in a trance or ecstatic state, but rather is very much under control, able to start and stop the use of this gift. Paul says uh, later on, it, we'll look at when we look at the second half of 1 Corinthians 14, that, um, that if there's more than one person doing this gift in this particular setting in the Corinthian church, that they should sort of line up and let two or three, and then no more should speak. And so one should, should wait for the other. So if you can wait with this gift, it's not like something that hits you and you're some sort of you know, spiritual zombie that is just sort of a filter for God. Friends, that is not it. And we've seen abuses of this, haven't we? Um, many of us have. The, 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 the spirit is subject to the prophet or the tongue speaker, all right? This is not a trance or ecstatic state. Okay, question number six. What is the function of tongues? The function of tongues, as we mentioned before, is speech directed toward God that is prayer, praise, or thanksgiving. Speech directed toward God that is prayer, praise, or thanksgiving. When spoken in public gatherings of the church, it should always be accompanied by the gift of interpretation. Paul says that clearly in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. And later on, in the second half of Corinthians, he says that if there isn't a tongue interpreter there, they should remain silent. Just as a side note here, I think it also functions as a sign. But listen, this is an often misinterpreted verse. Let's, let's read verses 20 uh, through uh, 21, 22 again of chapter 14. Um, he says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 21, he says, in the law, and now he's going to quote a verse out of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. Okay, click in with me. Now, I know this is heavy-duty stuff. We're not usually this, this doctrinal and this meaty, but click in. This is important. In this verse, tw- chapter 21, he's going to quote an Old Testament verse, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. In the law, it is written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So he's quoting there, Isaiah 28, 11, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And so what is he saying there? Well, what does he mean by it's a sign, and he's using it 
he's using the correlation to this Old Testament verse of Isaiah chapter 28. What's happening in Isaiah 28? Why would he make that connection? In Isaiah chapter 28, God is speaking to his people, the Israelites, and saying that he is going to judge them for the hardness of their hearts by causing an invading army to come in and smash them. And that's what he's saying in verse 28, verse 11 of Isaiah. And so in that case, this unintelligibility of the speech for the Israelites is a sign of God's judgment and displeasure for them. And so what he's saying to the Corinthians now is he's saying, listen, don't do this. Because when God uses speech that is unintelligible, he uses it as a sign of judgment. And when you unwittingly speak in tongues and cause confusion in the public gathering, what you're doing is you are, you are causing a scenario to happen like what happened in Isaiah 28. And God's not ready to, he does, that's not what God wants to do right now through speech. He wants the people to understand what he is saying to them. He wants the unbeliever to understand what he's saying. He's not ready to judge them. He wants them to come to Christ in this moment. And so in a negative sense, Paul is encouraging them to not let their tongues be a sign because God wants to win these people, not judge them like he was doing in the Old Testament. Does that, does that kind of clarify that for you? Okay, so that's in a sense where tongues can be a sign, but Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to not abuse it so that it becomes a sign. He's wanting them to speak intelligently and understandably so people can actually hear the message of God. All right, that's the function of tongues. A couple more questions and we'll be done. I hope you're enjoying this and I hope your Father's Day pot roast is not burning. All right, let's go. Question number seven. Does speaking in tongues always involve known human languages? I don't think so. And I think there's a pretty clear strand of evidence in this chapter that would point us towards it not always being known human languages. Some Christians who believe that tongues is still in operation today do believe that tongue speech is always a known foreign language that might just be unknown to the person speaking that language. Where do they get that from? Well, they get that from Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we see that there were... I believe 16 different ethnic groups named there where the early Jewish uh, believers spoke in these tongues. And in that case, in Acts chapter 2, the tongues that they were speaking were not a, a sort of heavenly or angelic tongue as we often refer to uh, today, but it was a known foreign language that was unknown to the speaker. So it would be like if I just started speaking in Russian in some situation, and there was some Russian people here, or Chinese, or whatever, and because they heard me, obviously not knowing their language, speak in their language, it became a, a, a sense that God was speaking to them. And so some Christians believe that that's all that tongues are, but I don't think that that's what's going on. Look at verse 2 again in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands them. So in this case this tongue speaking in chapter 14, there seems to be no understandability, at least in known languages, of what's going on there. And then in verse 23, uh, Paul writes this. Skip down to verse 23 of chapter 14. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And so in this case, we have, again, a similar situation to what we have in Acts chapter 2. We've got the Jews and then outsiders, maybe other ethnic groups in there, 
But Paul seems to assume a situation where they're not going to understand this particular tongue. And so I think that what's going on there is Paul is speaking about some sort of heavenly language. And so I think tongue speech can take a few different forms. Certainly it can be a known human language that maybe God gives a person for some sort of purpose. But I think we also have to allow for the possibility, and it seems that Paul strongly applies this, and it also seems to strongly imply that when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, where he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I mean, what are the tongue of angels? I think it is some sort of heavenly, not known human language. And so I don't think that tongues necessarily always involve known human languages. Question number eight. Does speaking in tongues have both a public and private use? Well, again, I think we have to be careful here, but I think that, yes, I think that Paul seems to indicate that they do. That there was this sort of public use that we saw in Acts chapter 2, 8, 10, and 19. And then we see this public use in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says that there needs to be an interpretation when Christians are gathered so that there's intelligibility. But he also seems to clearly imply that there is another more personal use for tongues. And look at verse 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians uh, 14. He says in verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul is clearly saying that I wish you, many of you would have this gift, but in church, in church, I'm not going to use this gift even though I do it a lot. This is what D.A. Carson, Don Carson, one of the most respected scholars in the church today, who is no, I mean, he is, he is de- he's over in the Reformed Bible Doctrine camp. I mean, I love this guy. I've read many of his books. But he believes the gifts have continued. He is no, you know, uh, shot in the dark. He's no, you know, just guy that's trying to uh, sell books. He is very measured, very careful theologian. This is what Don Carson, who writes a commentary on chapters 12, 13, and 14 called Showing the Spirit, which would be another great for you, book for you to get if you're interested more deeply in this. He says on these verses about Paul's private use of tongues, he says, there is no stronger defense of the private use of tongues than these verses here where Paul says that I, I speak in these tongues away from the gathered church. And attempts to avoid this conclusion turn out on inspection to be remarkably flimsy. If Paul speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians, yet in the church prefers to speak five intelligible words rather than 10,000 words in a tongue, then where does he speak them? The only possible conclusion is that Paul exercised his remarkable tongues gift in private. That's, that's, those are strong words from D.A. Carson, a very measured and careful theologian. Um, just as an aside here, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the priority is edification of the whole body, not personal tongue speech. But that does not mean that self-edification is a bad thing. And so if Maybe you've come from a theological perspective that says, yeah, tongues is here, but it's kind of a silly sort of kindergarten gift that just edifies yourself when really you should be edifying, you know, the body. Friends, yes, that's what Paul is speaking about here in 1 Corinthians 14, that when we gather, our focus and our priority should be edifying one another and should not be 
on ourselves. But that doesn't mean that self-education is a bad thing. In fact, in Jude, right before Revelation, the second to last book in the New Testament, the writer writes, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, build yourself up in the most holy faith by praying in the Spirit. So, does tongue speaking, does speaking in tongues have both a public and private use? Uh, I think yes. Two more questions and we're done. And these are very quick. Will all, Christ, will all Christians receive the gift of tongues? No. Friends, that seems clear in Paul's words in chapter 12 where he says, rhetorically speaking, at the end of the chapter, do all prophesy? Do all speak in tongues? No. He's arguing for the humble variety of the gifts there. And so that's where I think is a tremendous downside of many uh, church cultures that believe in the gifts is that they unwittingly create a culture of second-class citizens where if you don't have this particular gift, you are somehow, you're, you're, you play on the JV, you play on Thursday nights, man. You don't get to wear your jersey to school. Friends, that's terrible. That's the very thing that Paul writes these chapters for. So will all Christians receive any particular gift or this particular gift of tongues? No. Final question. Is the gift of tongues necessarily a sign of spiritual maturity or power? No. A thousand times no. Could it be a wonderful thing if God gives it to you for your edification and growth and intimacy with the Lord? Yes. But it's not necessarily, necessarily a sign of any maturity or power. In fact, it seemed to be a sign of the Corinthians' immaturity and selfishness. <laughs> That's the whole reason we have chapters 12, 13, and 14, is because they had this gift, but they were exercising it in a very immature way. In fact, as we talked about last week, or two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gift of tongues is not necessarily even evidence, or any spiritual gift is even evidence of salvation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. So there are people. God can use a donkey to speak to people. He can, he can use a pagan to bring about his sovereign plan. Gifts are not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity or power, but that doesn't mean that we should not pursue all that God has for us. Well, you may be wondering, how should prophecy in tongues function in the church today? Well, I think we've had enough for today, so we'll cover that when we get to the rest of chapter 14. But let me end with just a few thoughts, a few pastoral observations and thoughts. Friends, this is an open-handed issue. I think probably one of the downsides of American church culture is that oftentimes church groups and denominations will zero in on a second-handed issue and they will unwittingly divide and conquer their own ability to make much of Jesus by focusing on a particular a stance on a particular issue. This is an issue that I think Christians should interact with one another with great humility and generosity. The second uh, pastoral thought and observation is that I've had much experience in both streams of the church, both the Pentecostal and the cessationist stream of the church. Uh, my experiences that Pentecostals and Charismatics are often very earnest, and I love that. I love their passion, and I love their eagerness for all that God has for them. But they're often not very interested in biblical precision and doctrine. 
And I often find a lot of carnality and self-servingness in those cultures, not necessarily all the time. But, and I also have found that uh, we need to guard ourselves against merely learned or suggested behavior that is devoid of any real thoughtfulness and Christ-centered power. And what happens a lot of times in those cultures, not all of them, certainly, is that these gifts sort of terminate on us. They're merely gifts that we seek for the sake of propping ourselves up and making much of ourselves, or we want these gifts to be in operation in our gathered worship solely so that we will have an anointed service. Friends, the goal of Crosspoint Church, the goal of the New Testament church is not that we would walk out of the building thinking, oh, how great that song was or how good that word is. The goal of the gathering of the New Testament church is to make much of Jesus so that his name would be made great, so that sinners would bow in faith and repentance to Jesus and his people would be encouraged, friends. Not so that we would have a special personal experience. As much as God may want that for you, his motivation in the gathering of the church is the upbuilding of his people for the glorifying of his name, right? It's not a selfish personal experience. And oftentimes in cultures that believe in the gifts, it somehow unwittingly, unintentionally turns into that. Now as a critique to the other stream of the church that I've spent a lot of time in, the confessional uh, side of the church that would maybe not believe in the gifts. Friends, to you, I would say, um, I encourage you to study this issue. One of my theological heroes, and if you're from that confessional reform side of the church, one of your th- theological heroes is a man named Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening in American history, the greatest theologian in the history of America in the 1700s. And he spoke often about these two dual thoughts in the Christian thinking, light and heat, that we should study the truth of God's word and we should be, all of us, all Christians should have a theologian's heart to understand the light of the truth of God's word. But just ending there on doctrinal truth, just stopping at the light is half the picture that this light must cause heat. It must warm your heart and stir your affections for Jesus. In fact, one of his most famous works is a book called Religious Affections, we don't use that word religious anymore. It has a bad connotation. But in Edwards' day, religious just meant simply being a Christian. And so he wrote a book for all of his friends that just wanted to think about all of the reformational truths, which I think are beautiful and necessary, and we need to spend time on. And he says, friends, if, if your heart stops at doctrine and your heart is not warmed with Christ and you don't stir your heart towards wanting all that God has, for you so that through you and through us, God might make much of ourselves. You've stopped short. And so to, the, to my Pentecostal friends, I would say, humble yourselves. And to my confessional friends that don't believe in the gifts, I would say, humble yourself and let the power of God warm your heart so that he would make much of Jesus. The third thing is, as far as pastoral thoughts, is the real issue for Paul was understandability. Do you realize that's the whole point of chapter 14 is that when we gather together, there wouldn't be sort of this crazy, strange culture, but that the people, whether they are already believers or unbelievers coming in, would be able to understand what's going on so that they would fall on their face and trust in Jesus. And my final observation and pastoral thought is simply to encourage us towards humility. Friends, let's admit these are regardless of whether you are a tongue speaker or not, or you believe in it or not, it is strange. It's strange. Why? 
would God give the gift of tongues to his church? Regardless of whether you believe it's an operation today or not, all of us believe that it was an operation in the New Testament, right? It's clearly in the Bible. So if it's strange today, it's just as strange back then. Why would God do this? Friends, now this is just me speaking. This is just my opinion, so take that for what it's worth. But I think that one of the things that God is wanting to do in even giving this strange gift is to humble us. If you look back at the Tower of Babel, when human pride was running amok, God confused them with the judgment of scattered tongues. And we take this gift of tongues, some of us, and we use it for our sort of own empowerment, or some of us look suspiciously at it as if God doesn't do that anymore, when I think both camps are missing the point here of humility. God can't be figured out, friends. He's not an equation where two plus two equals this. Confess this prayer, ABC, do this pamphlet, go to this class, blah, blah, blah. We are so systematic and pragmatic as Americans. If, we can't, if it doesn't fit on a flow chart, man, we don't want it. And I think one of the reasons God gives this humbling, strange, weird gift is to humble the proud heart of idolaters like us. And he wants to break us of our pride. We can't figure out God. Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36 is a smashing verse. It says, he, who does God, God doesn't have a counselor. He hasn't given us a gift that we need to repay him. God, his ways are past finding out. This is what Paul writes in the beginning of this beautiful book that we started this study. Uh, Robert read some of it. He says, and I'll end with this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Friends, not only is the gift of tongues strange, the whole plan of salvation is strange. God is sovereign. He can make you bow, man. He can bust you over the head right now, make you bow your knee and confess his name. But strangely enough, he doesn't work like that. He is the sovereign God, kills himself so that you will trust in him. Friends, that's strange. That's strange. The whole message of the gospel is weird. But that's what makes it so beautiful and powerful that God displays his greatness through humility rather than force. And he says in verse 26, or verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And the folly of what we preach is not that preaching is foolish, although I'm often foolish when I preach, but what Paul means there is the content of the message. That you need to bow your heart to a sovereign king who doesn't overpower you but gives you grace and woos you so that in love you will turn from yourself and turn to him. Friends, that is strange. That is foolish according to this world. Verse 26, skip down there. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, if all of this has gone over your head and you have thought, what in the world is he talking about? Tune into this. I think God has many purposes in giving these gifts that we've talked about today to advance the gospel, to encourage his people, to build, console, to speak prayer and praise to him. I think that's all of things that we very much need to study. But the bigger issue, friends, is have you humbled your heart to the strange, otherworldly love of God who works not like we work, who caused his son to die on a cross as a sacrifice for your sins so that you would do what seems foolish, not trust in yourself, but trust in Jesus. Friends, that's, that's humbling. We are, we are all do-it-yourselfers, aren't we? And the message of the cross is to turn from trust in yourself and to trust in Jesus. It takes humility. I pray that, as I pray in just a moment, that God would give you that gift of repentance and faith, and you would turn from your own wisdom. You would turn from your own mind, and you would turn in faith and trust in Jesus. And let's pray. Lord, as we conclude now with a song and two of response. I pray that you would help us look past a doctrinal position. That you would humble us. Lord, for for my friends that are Christians in this room, I pray that you would give us a tremendous amount of grace and charitability towards brothers and sisters who we may disagree with on this issue. And if we've been provoked by your spirit to reevaluate our stance, I do pray that you would give us humility and earnestness that we wouldn't just move on to the final round of the U.S. Open and just let this truth run off our back like a duck out of water. But that this truth would help to equip and encourage and empower your church for the glory of your name. And secondly, Lord, for people that are in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, and certainly there are some in this room with a crowd this size that are not yet believers in Jesus. Maybe they know they're not or they think they are, but they haven't truly trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you would give them the strange humility to turn away from pragmatism and self-trust. You'd give them the gift of repentance whereby they would turn away from their sin and trusting in themselves. And then you'd give them the beautiful gift of faith whereby they would look and see Jesus and what he's done on the cross and trust in you. And friend, if that's you right now, you don't need to repeat a prayer or fill out a card. What you need to do is you need to look to Jesus. Love him. He needs to become more lovely than your sin and your flesh and your trust in yourself. Believe in Jesus. Faith at its core is love. Do you love Jesus? Love him. Love him more. Love him more than your past. Love him more than the sin that you think 
that you think disqualifies you. Love him more than that secret habit. Love him more than the pursuit of self-adulation. Love him more. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you don't have sin. It means that you're taking God's side against your sin. It means you love God more than your sin. Stop taking your sin side against God. Take God's side against your sin, friends. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do that right now. You don't, you don't need to be coached in that. Look, it's a gift. God may be saving you right now. He's giving you a new heart. Friends, all you've got to do is breathe faith. Look to him. Look to him. Look to Jesus. I know it's strange. It's humbling, isn't it? Yes. Do it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus right now. Lord, as we respond to you, uh, I pray that these words would settle fast in your people's hearts. Thank you, God, for your gift of your word and your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.